The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hello. Hi there, and welcome. Welcome to the Visual Workplace. I'm Gwendolyn Galsworth, and I'm your host on this, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. I'm really glad you came. Thank you. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the living landscape of work through visual devices, through visual mini-systems, so that we can work with higher focus, more precision, better safety, better pace, so that our company can make great profit margins, increasingly improved profit margins, and so we can enjoy ourselves along the way. And to do that, we let the workplace speak. We find ways of embedding what we know about running the operations and doing good work. We embed it into the physical landscape of work through visual devices. Today, we are going to continue our discussion on smart, simple design. This is our third, it is our fourth show in the series. Last week, we talked with Eric Lale from Total Inside in North Carolina, and he told us about some of his hair-raising experiences in the furniture industry in Hickory, North Carolina. Do you remember remember his story about the Juanita Hicks? who had been working at a company for 30 years and dealing with 865,000 pieces of wood. Hmm? She had 30 indirect people pulling parts for her all the time. Huge, huge, huge amount of variety. And the question is, is was it positive or was it negative variety? Hmm? And Eric told us how he he applied the principles of smart, simple design, turning off the ERP system, and ending up reducing the inventory by 90%. And if you remember, Eric said, the parts level in this strategy is the macro level, the highest level, the strategic level is the parts level of the organization. And I say that too. I say it a different way. I said it in uh, the show just before Eric, and that is all costs adhere to the part. And that's what we're going to continue discussing today. And some of you, if you've been on vacation for the last three weeks or maybe you went to the moon or something like that, (laughs) uh, if you haven't been following our discussion, we actually are talking about a book that I wrote in 1994 called Smart Simple Design, and it is about simplifying the organization by decomplicating your product architecture or if you're in the service business, then decomplicating your service architecture 
And it is the predecessor of lean and visual, of the need for lean and visual. In other words, we need lean and visual to a great extent to cope with the complexities of our organizations, to cope with the parts variety, the service variety of our organizations. So lean and visual in that way are coping mechanisms. They're not prime movers. The prime movers, as far as I can see, Eric agrees with me and many, many other people, and perhaps you'll get this this uh, concept, is the part itself. Okay, that is the core. And today, we're going to be talking, we're going to be moving into a new area. We'll be talking about cost, something that I, that's called true cost. And we'll also be talking about your classification system. And please, if you are a regular listener of my show, I hope you stick with it because for me, this is really, really interesting. I was 10 years into my research and applications and implementations of visuality when I discovered this um, variety reduction program that uh, Suzue and Kodote did, uh, uh, came up with, developed. They're two Japanese practitioners, and they wrote a book uh, that was unfortunately poor, not, not well translated. Uh, they wrote a book called um, Variety Reduction Program. But it kind of sent a message that the marketing people didn't like, which is we are reducing variety. But I, I approach it from a different way. I talk about making variety effective, finding a way to have effective variety. For example, much of what passes for customer selection, and this is by way of recap for those of you who have, who have been with us for the last several shows, much of what passes for increased customer selection might be indeed, and in reality, needless variation. Nissan, for example, offered 87 different types of steering wheels. But it is a rare customer who buys a car because of a steering wheel. <laughs> the choice is pointless. The choice is pointless, in my opinion. And from that point of view, it's negative. Negative variety adds cost not value. It burdens the corporation with complexity and expense, congestion, and ultimately the customer pays for it. Positive variety, and this is terminology that I've developed using, uh, using this approach. Positive variety adds value, increases sales, and cuts cost. So understanding the distinction between positive and negative variety and their causes is the focus, the beginning focus anyway, of today's show. I want to talk about that. And I also want to say, I want to say this again, unrestrained variety in designs and models, whether products or services, is not a requirement for increasing market share. The difference, in a nutshell, is that positive variety is customer-driven, Negative variety is everything else. The result of the way the business operates, its policies, its practices, we're going to begin to talk about that today, its systems. In other words, negative variety is internally triggered. Positive variety is triggered by the customer. And effective variety is the balance point between the two. You're never going to get rid of all of the cost triggered by variety. 
but you want to find that balance point. It's not a static endpoint of a journey. It is finding that ever-shifting point of balance that's suitable for your organization and balancing that with the competing forces of this crazy marketplace, this volatile marketplace that we live within and the internal requirements of running your business. Okay, so it's it's like a seesaw. I was talking about that in the show before last. So this balance point is what we're seeking. And the way that we find the balance point is to root out the causes of negative variety and to find this thing that I love calling the least cost means, sometimes called the least sum means. It means you really hone it down so that even though it's going to cost you, it costs you the least amount. There are causes that are avoidable. And many of these are linked to specific company practices. Some of them are informal, written down. We know about them. They're SOPs. They're in your ISO handbook. And others of them are informal and in many ways even more powerful. But when we talk about rooting out the causes of negative variety, we have to look at marketing, sales, design engineering, process engineering, operations, purchasing, and on and on. Because the fact is, you ship your organization. You Whatever your organization is gets shipped when you deliver a product, gets shipped when you deliver a service. There's no hiding. It's like who you are. The face that you walk around with is a face that tells us many things about other things than your face. It's that way when you ship your organization. Okay? If your product strategy and your parts strategy doesn't consider the impact on the entire organization, the impact that new products and new services will have on the entire organization relative to variety effectiveness... It shows. It'll show and it'll impact everything else. Quality, your quality, your performance, the cost to you, the price to the customer. Okay? So this is basically what we've been talking about in the last three shows. And so today what we're going to do is go further into how do you find and ensure effective variety. And I want to talk about policy. I want to talk about the kinds of begin this discussion There are several components of it. What is officially sanctioned? What is um, accepted tribally, as it were, as um, acceptable principles and practices? This is what I mean by policy, company policy. It's behaviors, it's practices. Some of it is written down. We have to look at those because those formal and informal policies will trigger a great deal of good, but also a great deal of, in this case, negative variety. And they they kind of group in five sections. The first section is called accounting. And uh, I will be going into this today a little bit. Don't get scared. I, I'm not an accountant. I'm not good in talking about um, accounting procedures, but I do understand the difference between accounting and something that we're going to call true cost. So one is accounting, another is marketing and sales, the third is product development, 
The fourth is data systems, which we are going to get into today, and that has to do with your parts classification system. I want to give you some simple things to do that are going to be so powerful in changing the negative impacts of what's going on in your parts classification system. And the fifth is operations. Okay? So, first thing I want to talk about is um, the kind of traditional, so we're going to do accounting first, and I want to talk about the traditional cost accounting very, very briefly and in broad strokes so that I can then contrast that with an approach that I think is actually more accurate and more useful. So in traditional accounting, what happens is that the company gauges its progress almost exclusively on outputs and on past history. The focus is on passive measures, and it's called LMNO, <laughs> labor, material, and overhead. Okay? So that LMO, we're going to see it rear its ugly head repeatedly in our discussion in this first part of today's show. The thing is about traditional cost accounting is that it often runs counter to world-class values and objectives. It really flies in the face of this new journey to excellence. And some of you have adopted or have explored something called ABC accounting or lean accounting, and there's a whole and powerful movement on that that is well worth your uh, investigation. And the thing about accounting for our traditional accounting for our discussion is that it will mask the direct and the indirect effects of negative variety. You can't find it. Mushrooming parts are practically impossible to validate in terms of the principles and the practices of traditional cost accounting. It's invisible. It doesn't address. It's called GAP, General Accounting Let's see, generally accepted accounting principles, gap. But in this, in this age of increasing demand and falling prices, you have to know about cost. You have to know what costs adhere to the part. So we're going into a break right now and uh, I want to resume this. Please come back. I honestly, I used to be a Latin teacher and now I'm doing pretty good in workplace visuality. And I do not understand accounting. I'm going to make it understandable to me. And that's as far as I'm going to go. I wrote a whole chapter of this in my Smart Civil Design book. And I don't know where I got the uh, the strength to do it. But I have had accountants read it. And they say, yeah, 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 yeah. You make sense. So I'm going to try to share some of that with you uh, as part of today's show. So you get what we mean by true cost. I need to set up this kind of contrast. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. You're at the Visual Workplace, and I'll see you in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, 
Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi there, it's Gwendolyn. Welcome back to the Visual Workplace and welcome back to our discussion of smart, simple design. We are going to the mother of <laughs> lean and visuality, which are the uh, grandchildren or stepchildren of the big problem in an enterprise, which is complexity. And we're looking at what are the causes of this complexity that we should need lean and that we should need to continuously improve and to use visuality to help us cope with the complexity, with the what I call negative variety in the organization. And I wrote a book in 1994 that's out of print now, but it's going to be we're going to republish it in the next two or three months because I think maybe after 20 years, maybe its time has come. Smart, simple design. We're talking about the impact, the triggers of negative variety. And right now, the impact of a kind of out-of-date, may I say, out-of-date accounting system, how that keeps us from from seeing what is the cost of that negative variety. So I was saying just before the break that the traditional cost accounting system, which is often called GAAP, generally accepted accounting practices, is uh, very, very old. (laughs) It's like a 100 years old, and lots of things have changed since then, but it continues to use labor, material, and overhead costs as the way that it assigns cost. But you know what? A 100 years ago, labor costs represented 75 to 95% of total cost. Now it represents about 7% or less. A hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, material cost was 10 to 15% of the total cost. Now it's like 50%. And overhead costs used to be 5 to 15%. You understand the enterprise configuration has evolved. Not saying it got better or worse, but it has evolved over these last hundred years. And where it used to be 5 to 15%, it's now 35 to 50% of the total cost. But still, this LMO, besides being out of date in that way, masks what's going on with product and, and parts proliferation. In the 1970s and 80s, 
companies changed the way they did business, but they didn't change their accounting practices. So that's kind of standing in our way as well. Okay, because whatever your accounting approach is will define the performance outputs as valuable or not valuable, as relevant or as extraneous, not important. So the GAP procedures, this traditional approach, is not designed to track complexity. And in fact, this is scary, they can actually trigger more parts. They can trigger more complexity, the complexity that adheres to those parts. They cannot, because they weren't designed to do this, identify or clarify the levels of organizational complexity. They cannot illuminate opportunities to reduce or dismantle that complexity. So I want to, by contrast, then um, describe to you the contrasting model, the one that fits with the smart, simple design paradigm. And that is called true cost. And there are three dimensions of true cost. And again, I take my hat off to my uh, betters, <laughs> Tosia Zuzue and Akira Kudote. They're the ones who uh, wrote that first book on variety reduction. And even though it's a bit obscure and a bit, ar- bit arcane, they were very, very smart. And we thank them for this notion of True cost. True cost, I'm just going to say this to you now and then I'm going to explain it briefly, but I hope well enough for you to say, oh, I get that. I understand. True cost is a combination of three things. The first is variety costs plus, second thing, function costs plus, third thing, control costs. Now, let me just explain these to you so you get this this perspective. Let's start with function costs. A function cost is what the company has to do to fulfill the performance requirements of a single product, to fulfill that specification, not to make it, but actually to design it and get it to behave a particular way, to get it to function. So that's, you could think of it as an engineering cost or product development cost. The variety cost is related to what the company does to develop and manufacture those products. So it has to do with the differences, and you can see them in the differences of dye, the differences of fixture, all of that activity on the production floor, the changeovers. We've mentioned this in several shows. The control cost is the most hidden, and in many, many ways, it's the most virulent or uh, monstrous. And that is, it, it is what the company has to do to order, to track, to inspect, and to otherwise support the manufacturing, the shipping, the follow-up, the aftermarket activities of diverse products. And this is the way that we must learn to cost out the introduction of a new part. So we can't just see that the part is going to cost us 21 cents and choose to buy it because it's two cents cheaper than another part. We have to see what the part is going to cost us in terms of those three components, 
function, variety, how do we manufacture it, and control. Design it, acquire it, order it, receive it, inspect it, store it, retrieve it, right? (laughs) Receive it, retrieve it, count it, handle it, maintain it, all of that stuff. In general, the costs break along these lines. For function costs, you get about 40% of the total cost of the part. But I want to bill that cost of the part. I hope you get this. I really hope this translates into images so that you follow this conversation. So the so-called F costs or function costs are about 40%. The variety costs, what happens on the floor or what happens in your actual service delivery is your variety cost is 25%. And your control costs, all that counting and tracking, is 35%. So 40, 25, and 35%. These are approximation, and they can certainly fluctuate depending on your industry and the markets, etc., and also on the level of ongoing improvement that you're, that are looking at these activities. So let's look at a single part. And I, and I think I'll make this, be able to make this point for you clearly. Because remember, our premise is that all costs adhere to the part. So we're going to look at a part from the point of view of traditional, um, traditional cost accounting. And it's going to be, called series a series 11. Let's just call it product A. I'm going to call it product A versus product B. The material con- this is a product, okay? This is a product. The material content of this product is cost $20.50. The direct labor is 21 minutes. The total number of parts is 29. Let's go to product B. That was product A. Product B costs $21.75. It takes 10 minutes of direct labor, and it has 46 parts. Hmm? So we have one that costs $1.25 more. Product A is $20.50. Product B is $21.75. One has almost double the parts. Product B has 46 parts. Product A has 29, and product B also takes half the amount of time, and product A is twice as much time. How do you make the decision? Well, in cost accounting, there's no question about it. Product B is going to be more expensive because it is more expensive. But if we look deeper, if we start looking at the other costs that adhere to it, very interesting. Let's look at our product A. Our product A costs $20.50, takes 21 minutes, has 29 parts. It involves six process steps. It involves one die, three fixtures, 33 drawings, and eight inspection points. So what we just did is we revealed what else was going on when that product entered the system, what else adhered to the product. The other one, our product B, the one that cost $21.75, took 10 minutes to make and had 46 parts, has 16 process steps, four tool and die, seven fixtures, 51 drawings, 
and 12 inspection steps. We are looking at the array of costs that adhere to that product in order to determine what? Its true cost. We have to determine its true cost. Now, I don't want to go much further into this because you really do need a pencil and paper for those of us who aren't uh, engineering geniuses to hold on to this conversation. But what I want you to get is that we are misled if we simply look at the price per piece or at what the product appears to cost in terms of the material. One of the big hidden pieces, as I just said and I hope illustrated, is this whole control cost item. There are companies that are running not just on ERP but on SAP in order to get their arms around this enormous variety. I mean, we see this in aerospace everywhere, all kinds of complex assemblies. And I'm not saying that SAP shouldn't be there, but I'm saying what percentage of that complexity that SAP is running is there by design and what is there because folks don't understand the negative variety. They haven't cleaned up that part. I am a big, 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 big fan of carefulness on the front side or if you weren't careful on the front side to start cleaning up the mess. In our second to the last show, the one right before Eric, I talked to you about the parts index. It was a way of exposing product complexity by saying it isn't just how many times do you use, it isn't just how many parts are in the product, but how many occurrences are there in the model line? How many occurrences of the part in the model line will give you this multiple? So we go occurrence, we go number of parts times number of occurrences and we get this multiple. We get a multiple that shows us it isn't just a linear, but it's a kind of exponential or geometric view of product complexity. And that's the same way with true cost. We want to reveal what is this, this complexity really costing us. So I'm going to stop the conversation now on true cost and product index because I don't want to lose the folks who have had enough of this. But I want to encourage you to really question some of the premises by which you make decision. And you know, this has a complete interface with your purchasing function. We'll talk about that a little bit in the next show, not too much. I want to go through a list of policies that could stand to be changed around purchasing pets and price per piece and that sort of thing so that your purchasing folks can understand that they are a part of the equation both of the cure and also of the illness. Okay, it's just misunderstanding. It can be easily corrected. That's what I love about smart, simple design and also about visuality and really also about lean is that it has to do with a change of awareness. It has to do with new paradigms of thinking and we can change our behavior to line up with that and we can, you know, really create great companies and have prosperous lives and prosperous communities because our thinking has cleared up. I'd love to hear from some of you uh, about whether or not I'm doing a pretty good job or a god-awful job on explaining this to you because my, my focus is not just to explain it, 
but to really share an awareness so that there's better understanding. Otherwise, I'm just talking to myself. And, you know, I prepare for these shows and I prepare for the fact that we're on the radio and that I have to be very clear. And I'm getting a little better at this. It's been just a year and a week since I began. I'm getting a little bit better. And please send in your emails the way you've been doing. Thank you. And let me know how I'm doing on this kind of heady stuff. So right now we're going into a break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about the uh, parts classification system and some things that you can do to help clear up that, that, what can I call it? That mess. It's a, <laughs> it's a mess. Not in your company, but in some of the other companies that are listening today. <laughs> okay. Take us to our break. Thanks. Stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. Hi there, it's Gwendolyn. I'm coming back courageously moving forward. You are at the Visual Workplace. Welcome. And we are also deeply in our discussion of an aspect of what I call Smart Simple Design, a book that I wrote in 1994 that I really loved. It really was a hard book to write because in trying to explain complexity, you have to stay pretty simple, but it gets complicated. (laughs) You know what I mean? <laughs> so in the first part of the show, we talked about an, first an overview and then about costing and the accounting and how to look at a product and begin to identify what it truly costs, not based on labor, material, and overhead because that's too exclusive. It excludes too much. But on something else, on a paradigm of thinking called true cost – which brings in how much does it cost you to get function in place? How much does it cost you to have the variety on the shop floor, to have differences on the shop floor? And the best example of that is different dye 
for different models, for different parts, different uh, drill bits? And how much does it cost you to control that or manage it, to track it, to count it, to retrieve it, to store it, to get the paperwork done, even if it's done on the computer? This, this mind-bending complexity. What does that really cost? So that was the first part. Second part, I want to move into another area of policy. It is a one of the five, and I had said accounting, and I consider that not understanding true cost. That's the problem. That's a trigger. A trigger of negative variety is in accounting because we don't understand true cost. There are triggers in sales and marketing. I will talk about this next, next time. In product development, that's three. Four is data systems, and I'm going to talk about that now. And five is operations. So in the data systems, what I want to talk about is your classification systems. Please stick with me. I'm going to say it simply, but it's so important, even if you're in operations and you just want to shut out what's going on in engineering, you need to know. And I'm going to give you a few very simple things to do that I just want you to try out on a discrete set of products. I don't want you to jump in and make it an initiative, but I want you to try it out and see what it gets you. (sighs) I have a name in the book for data systems that are not rational, and they're called bulging, bungling, blundering data systems. (laughs) I'm sorry if I'm stepping on anyone's toes, but the fact of the matter is a decision And the introduction of a product is only as good as the data on which it is based. So we have to do an analysis of our data system and we have to improve it. We have to make it effective. I call it variety effective or capable of variety effectiveness in keeping with the theme of the, of this series to get effective variety. Classification of parts in far too many companies are brimming over with inaccuracies, redundancies, useless and incomplete data. It's a big, big problem. It's a nightmare problem. And there are systems now and lots of web-based companies that will come and help you with this. But I want you to just try out a few things to see if, in fact, you are a company that has a pretty darn good system or needs help. So do a little baby analysis on your own. So what you want to look at is three major components. One is your part number prefaces. That means that similar parts usually share the same prefix. All springs should have, for example, a 6318 as the first four digits of its designation, of their designation, right? And then sometimes the rest of the number is just assigned sequentially. Hmm? Another thing that you look at is your computer codes, the actual codes that further refine the classification system. The logic and consistency of those codes will help you either find the part or think you need a new one. And sometimes you engineers, you great design engineers, 
you will try so hard to find a part and finally you or your boss will say, you know what, make a new one. I'm going to make a new one because I can't find the old one. And I don't know if it has exactly the right specs. I can't find the darn thing. And then you also look at your class codes. Your class codes is to allow for groupings of like items, like sensing assemblies or enclosures. And class codes categories, they tend to overlap a little bit. There are no exact concrete rules, but what you need to bring is a high level of rationality. So I want to tell you, we did some research with a company, the company that we used as the um, case study in this book. We disguised its name, of course, and it was, we called it PUI. Isn't that terrible that I did that? <laughs> I called it PUI. Pooey. Oh, Pooey. <laughs> and when we looked at its class codes before we started variety, of, variety effectiveness, there were 104. You might even say only 104. I'm sorry, I meant to mention there's a fourth, fourth thing you have to look at, which is uh, the, the description of the field. But when we looked at the actual codes, we had all you have to do is take three or four or seven of your class codes and see if they are logical within themselves and across the field. And we found things like this. Uh, for those of you who understand uh, classification systems, you have 30 little cells. They're called 30-character codes where you have 30 cells to say something in. That's all you get. I don't know if that's changed recently into more or less, but it used to be you have 30. And so we took a selection, and of course, high contrast because we wanted to make a point. So here is a selection of seven class codes across the 30-character field before we started the work. And one was called, used only part of the 30 cells, Overhaul SHG, which is Overhaul Housing. Another one said Pressure, comma, Non-Indicating. That was the whole, that was the whole classification. Another one, the whole code for this. Another one said Control Component. I mean, if you want to get very general, this is a control component. It's like saying that a night, a 2012 Lexus is a car. Hmm. Same thing as a 1989, a 1999 Kia is a car. <laughs> control component. Another one said screw, comma, one front slash four. So that's one quarter dash 20. Master switch with some spaces in between. Another commercial stock screw. Imagine that. You would have to have the screw in hand. You have a classification called commercial stock screw. And you get what I'm dealing with. Another one was SS hex head. So it was a stainless steel hex head. So you have to work on making your nomenclature capable, and you begin in a very simple way. You standardize your nomenclature. This is work, and it is work that must be done. You decide with your engineers, what are you going to call these things? What, what are they referred to? 
We do this on the shop floor when we try to standardize our nomenclature in order to be able to put together a bomb, which is the, a, a bill of material. So you standardize your nomenclature. What to do first? That's what you do first. You begin by standardizing your nomenclature. That means you develop, you define with your fellows a single set of terms or names for parts and types, and you stick with it. You stick with it. This becomes the common language that people use on a regular basis. A screw is no longer referred to also as a fastener. Lids are not covers. Angles, angle stays are not also brackets or braces. So without this kind of standard terminology for parts, you can't do anything with your class codes. You can't do anything with moving along. So I want to give you this assignment because I'm asking. Please just look at your class codes and think of and, and, and work towards standardizing them. A data system is capable. A data system is, let me just put it this way. Here are some areas of deficiency. The terminology to describe parts and products is inconsistent and confusing. The classification database is filled with data that are conflicting, duplicate, obsolete, inaccurate. You heard me say this before, incomplete. The procedures for adding new classification for a product or a part or a production process are informal, tribal. And so you have these rampant inconsistencies. Part numbers do not provide adequate attribute information. We have something, we recommend something that's called an attribute template. You decide what it is. But for this particular company, the template had five columns or categories. Part, material, length, treading, and heads. This was for screws. This was the template for screws. So you would have the part, the material, the length, the treading, and the head, and it would cover that 30-character field. It would be descriptive. Class codes overlap. There are no rules for assigning class codes. When the rules are in place, they are weakened by myriad exceptions. The information included in this 30-character description is insufficient for making decisions about variety. And there's no maintenance of the system. There's no stated policy to maintain the system. There's overlap and no rules. Oh, 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 no. Oh, no, we're in a mess. Oh, no. And this is a huge, huge problem because it's called a trigger. It's a trigger for negative variety. And it's, for me, the saddest kind. It isn't that somebody made the wrong decision. It's that the system isn't capable of helping you make the right decision because the codes are incomprehensible. It's like done by kids in kindergarten with very smart brains just to make the complexity more confusing. Okay? So I wanted to share that with you. We're going to go into a break right now, and when when I come back, I will... um, Uh, say a few more things about parts classification that I hope you find helpful. But you know what? 
if you folks on the shop floor are always complaining about the fact that engineering is not getting on board with improvement, and in some companies that may or may not be true, but this is great. You can think of it as improvement work, but what it will bring you to is a much lower cost in terms of your design and ultimately of your product. Huge, huge impact. Can you see the variety impact of that, that variety cost, what we call the V cost, because of an incapable bungling, what did I call it, bungling, bulging data system, blundering data system? Okay, thanks. I'll see you in a minute. Things will only get worse. (laughs) This poor company, it needs help. Help me quick. Talk to you in a minute. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands-on experience, Dr. Galsworth shows you how through in-house seminars, site assessments, total company conversions, keynotes, coaching, and consulting. Learn about visuality through our books, DVDs, on-demand webinars, visual edge learning packages, and a host of other teaching materials. Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Here I come back. Urgh. Er, I'm scaring everyone. <laughs> no, I'm scaring myself. <laughs> Why did I write this book? It's so unpleasant to look at these things. Um, welcome back to the Visual Workplace. This is Gwendolyn, and I want to kind of put some sh- further shape on this decomplicating the organization, beginning to do this by looking at your classification nomenclature, your classification system for parts that will eventually become products or for services. How do you describe your services? How do you keep track of them? I remember a group in Canada took Smart Symbol Design just within two years after it came out and they used it exclusively for their um, marketing. I mean, they used it diligently for their marketing because they were a distrib- they did air conditionings air conditioners and they had many many distribution outlets but they the 
the same product was called by such a spread of names that even the marketing department couldn't keep track of it, let alone their distributors. And so somebody would go shopping at Kmart and see an air conditioning. Then they'd go over to Walmart or they'd go to Home Depot and they'd see exactly the same air conditioner, but it would have a different name and they would wonder what's the difference in the spec. So the variety was really biting them on the behind. And it took them a long time working with sales and marketing to start smooth out that nomenclature. You see, it's a classification. We have classification systems when we have more than one thing. We have to call blue pen, red pen. We have to call things things so we can communicate with each other. I want to tell you about something. I saw a movie once. I'm, I'm kind of shooting myself in the foot here and not not uh, pursuing, but I want to, I, I saw a movie once, I'll have to find the name, and when I do, I will announce it, but it was about priests, French priests, who came to Canada uh, as it was being populated by, uh, as it was being colonized, and there were many Indians, and the Indians had a very rich and complete culture, but there were some things that their culture didn't do, for example, there w- wasn't anything written down, and therefore the idea of reading and writing was a foreign concept. Now, we think we understand what foreign concept means, and I thought I did. But I'll tell you, that movie, that hour and a half of watching that movie, was worth it for the following sequence. The priest was trying to explain to the Indian what writing did. And it simply wasn't within the paradigm of knowing of the Indian. So the priest did this. He said something to the Indian. He said something like, we are out of marmalade. And then on this thing called a piece of paper and with something called a pen, he wrote those same words. And he said, take this piece of paper and go over there down by the river where my fellow priest is and give him the piece of paper. And just say this, read. And the Indian went to went, you know, 50, 60 yards away because he was interested in what the priest was saying. What's he talking about here? He was intellectually curious. And the other priest opens up the piece of paper and the Indian says, read. So he reads out loud, we're out of marmalade. And you could see it was like a thunderbolt hitting the Indian. He got what writing was. He got what writing was. He got what it meant to read and write. It is useless to teach people how to read and write unless they get what it's used for and how revolutionary it is that you can communicate without being there or without making smoke signals. And it's that way with these classification systems. They really are there to help enormously. They are not our enemy. And that lightning bolt has to hit us. Oh my gosh, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. We didn't mean to, but we're still doing it. So here's some guidelines for uh, classifying parts. All parts within a class code will carry the same prefix numbers. In the part number designation followed by a dash, for example, all screws will begin with 6277. Numbers following the dash will be assigned sequentially. So that's a guideline. Any new part must be assigned to only one approved existing class code based on the most current class code list. 
Only one. You can't assign it to do. It can't be a bracket and a brace. Each new part number will be assigned to an existing class, cate- class code category that carries all similar parts. If one does not exist or if there is any question whether a part fits within the class code, there is a team leader that you go to to determine the classification. It isn't willy-nilly. You don't make stuff up. This isn't Disneyland. You don't make stuff up. You are creating a legacy that others have to use. Predefined attributes for each class code shall be the deciding factor in determining if a particular part fits within that class code. Number five, by the way, I'm going down a list, a little list on page 172. I think it will be helpful. This parts type leader will review and approve the coding of all new parts before they enter the system, the computer system, or the attribute database. I think I told you at Nissan they had border guards. No new part was allowed to enter the system unless it was approved. I mean, this is getting serious. This is war. (laughs) This is war, and we are the warriors. This same leader needs to approve any request for a class code change on an existing part. So if you think something's been misclassified, you can't just change it. You got to go and get that approved. You got to. I am not a lover of bureaucracy, but here I say absolute. This is the return of fascism. You will do it this way or the highway. You got to do this. The kind of complexity of just describing these mountains of parts, you take the doorway away when you don't have this kind of control. And finally, a class code will not overlap or be, will not have overlapping or redundant parts within it unless a special agreement has been met. This is just, you know, my kind of where I landed and I was working with engineers and at the time and they said, yes, oh, Gwenny, do this. We want it here. And by the way, this company went through its own revolution. So the notion of cleaning up the parts classification system in your company is big. It's very big. It's scary, but it has to be undertaken. And it should not be undertaken lightly. You have to implement this. I'm going to spend part of a show in talking to you about how to set up teams if you want to get serious about it. I'm, maybe my, my, my producer will say, no, Gwenny, people are on overload. They want you to get back to visuality. I'm not sure. But make no mistake, an information-capable parts data system is essential, even if you're not interested in variety effectiveness. It's simply a good business practice. But if you're committed to uncovering and rooting out negative variety in your company, you must have that, that capability to access accurate, complete, and meaningful data. You have to do this. You must do this, my friend. <laughs> and I'm sure you're interested in achieving greater degrees of effective variety in your organization. Because you know what? If you don't, you're throwing your money down the drain. I've had a really, I've had a wonderful time with you today. We're closing the show now. I want to thank you very much. I hope you wait for my thank you. I want you to write in, email me what you think about this. 
and we have, um, I think, two more shows and will be completed. I might have a call-in show, thinking about a call-in show with Eric at the very end. So you can call in live and we can take your questions and have some more fun together. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth at The Visual Workplace, and I'm signing off. Thank you so very much for listening. We appreciate your joining us this week for The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense. Please tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific, featuring your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening.